The Spectator is having a flash sale. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12, in print and online. Plus, we'll give you a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey, completely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Be quick, the offer ends on Monday. Hello and welcome to Women With Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in Lancashire and grew up in Merseyside. She was the only pupil at her secondary school to get 10 O-levels. At age 16, she went on to complete an apprenticeship at a car factory. After studying for a degree in business studies at Liverpool John Moores University, she spent the next two decades in the corporate world, rising the ranks of NatWest, Mastercard and Amadeus. In 2015, politics came calling when Baroness Anne Jenkins persuaded her to run as a Conservative candidate. After unsuccessfully contesting St Helens South and Whiston in 2015, she became Director of Women to Win, an organisation co-founded by Theresa May to get more Conservative women elected. In 2017, she entered Parliament, winning the safe seat of Chichester. In the following years, she held a string of junior government positions, backed Theresa May's Brexit deal and supported Rory Stewart in the 2019 leadership contest. Remember him. In February 2020, she became the Minister for Apprenticeships and Skills. My guest today is Gillian Keegan. So thank you very much for joining me today, Gillian. And we are recording in the Spectator office, but at a very safe social distance. Now, one of the things on this podcast we like to do, I suppose, as a first question is ask what I've been told is a leading question. But let's see. Would you describe your childhood as a happy one? Uh, yeah, definitely. It was a super happy childhood. So there's myself. I'm the eldest. I've got a sister, brother, mum and dad who are still happily married. I don't know how many years now, 60 odd. And my dad's one of 13, so we're from a massive Liverpool Catholic family. And, you know, I've got tons of cousins, and I guess that created its own environment. I mean, you know, there was no money, but there was a lot of laughs. So, yeah, I love my family. It's still, they're still, I mean, I still go back and see them all the time. They're still the best night out ever. And as you say, you grew up in Merseyside, which isn't really known for being a Tory stronghold. So was politics something that was discussed much growing up? Did your parents have strong political views? Parents definitely not. They never discussed politics. My mum was politically interested and she's basically a floating voter. She has voted for everybody from the Greens to UKIP. She's done the whole lot. So she's a proper floating voter. Dad never says what he votes. But my, I guess, it wasn't that political. We didn't talk about politics. Nobody talked about politics. But my granddad was a miner. So the miners' strike, when that was happening, I got a lot of his political views then, which let's just say he wasn't a huge fan of Margaret Thatcher. Nor was he a fan of Arthur Scargill. He was a Joe Gormley man. So did you start to have political views when you were growing up or did it come later in life? It came as I started work. Well, I suppose I started work at 16, so I was relatively young when I started work. I didn't have strong political views. I suppose if somebody would have asked me, I probably would have thought I was Labour. Everybody was Labour. It was a Labour place, you know. To get to school, I walked past Wilson Road, you know, Lansbury Road, Attlee Road, Hardy Road. (laughs) The place was pretty steeped in Labour history. Um, Strong hints of what you might decide. All the way, yeah. So, you know, I guess... You know, it was only ever Labour and all my, you know, my grandparents. Yeah, I think they'd been activists actually in their day as well. But I'd never really thought about it until I started work. And my first election, I was 19. So I started work at 16 in a car factory in Kirby. 
And that's when I started to be aware of, well, the unions for a start. It was the 80s, it was Merseyside, it was a car factory, there was a lot of strike action, let's just say. And that's where I started to sort of get more experience and sort of look at it. And, of course, I had Liverpool City Council in the form of Derek Hatton, just, you know, giving me a full example of the world according to militant tendencies. So I did have quite a lot of political experiences, you know. That's interesting because we had Therese Coffey on this podcast a while ago and she also had the experience, experience up close what Derek Hatton and Militant were doing when she was around Merseyside growing up and it does seem to have had that effect on a few people. Just seeing it made them actually suddenly become much more political than perhaps they would have been otherwise. It was astonishing. You could, ha- It was like jaw-dropping watching it. I actually met Derek Hatton. It's, it's astonishing. There was a wine bar. They opened a wine bar in Highton, which really was a room in a hotel. It was called Natterjacks, and there was a big opening, and it was the poshest thing that had happened to Highton, which, let's just say, there wasn't that many sort of swanky venues. Anyway, we go there, and there was a guy and his mate, and they were, they were drinking champagne, and nobody drank champagne then. Nobody. I mean, if you went to the bar, it was polite to say, you know, half a lager, half a lager and half a lager and black and that was it you know there was no fancy drinks because there was no money and there he was and everyone was like who's this guy and there was a driver outside who's this guy and then we realized who he was and I just looked and thought I am pretty sure he's not paying for any of this I'm pretty sure that either Liverpool City Council or Knowsley Council because he was on secondment from there was paying for it and that's when I just saw I mean the hypocrisy was just unbelievable and and it was real and it was real and actually They run the city to the ground. And, you know, when that happens and you watch it happen and you just see people on the other end of that, it was the same with the unions, you know, the car factory eventually closed and you just see people's, the life impacts that has. So it does, it does make you think about it. And yeah, that's when I became more conservative. And I voted Conservative from the first election from the age of 19. And I mentioned in the introduction your academic achievements in your in your comp. Am I right to say you're the only people to get 10 O-levels? And does that suggest you were ambitious as a child? <laughs> no, it's actually quite astonishing. So you only ever took six or seven. Seven, I think, was the maximum. But what had happened at school was, you know, in the 80s, and, and the sort of girls and the boys' gyms and PE were at different times. And what that meant is when you came to some of your options, you had to choose the girls subjects which were sewing and cookery and the guys got to do engineering and technical drawing and woodwork well I wasn't happy with this situation so my mum went up to school and said you know she wants to do these other subjects she wants to do technical drawing and engineering anyway the grand result of all of that was that I ended up doing all of them so I had to stay after school till half five because she'd made a huge <laughs> point of winning this big battle which effectively meant I had to stay in school till 5 30 a poor teacher who was fabulous Mr Ashcroft who was the guy who really inspired me in school and really thought I could make something myself and you know he stayed behind and I did all those subjects and that's how I ended up doing 10 I wasn't even a the the most surprised people when I got my O-level results I was one of the last years to do O-levels was every single one of my teachers and me I mean nobody nobody could believe it really I wasn't sort of the girly swat I wasn't even top of the class and did you have any early ambitions as a child you know in terms of what you wanted to be because we had various ones come up on this podcast going back to coffee she she wanted to be a mechanic nun what were you thinking around that time or perhaps when you were surprised by your own grades <laughs> well by that time so I'd started work at 13 I'd started as a as a Saturday girl in a shop and and actually I didn't get my grades my sister phoned me up and she'd kind of gone and got them and phoned me up and kind of went silent and said oh my god I can't believe you've got them all and we were you know 
sort of checking whether that was true. It couldn't possibly be true. Before that, so I'd been working in a shop on a Saturday. I kind of thought maybe a hairdresser. I've always liked fiddling with my hair. But I hadn't really had any sort of serious thoughts. And then it was actually my maths teacher who said, have you ever thought of doing an apprenticeship? There wasn't really... So the, the school I went to, they closed all the comprehensive schools in Knowsley. And, you know, and I went for the full five years. And there wasn't really much... much you, could have, you could have stayed on in sixth form. You know, they might have been able to squeeze an A-level or two out. But there was virtually nobody did and virtually nobody got anywhere and the chance of going to a decent university was was zero so this just in terms of like how many people they let in at that time uh, nobody passed nobody if you didn't get in i mean less than 10 percent of the kids got five gcses or o levels as they were at the time so if you haven't got you know the people getting the o levels to get onto a levels then you know there was just a cycle and they closed all the six forms down a couple of years later they were gone for good so and there was a new college carmel which funnily enough i speak to the principal now in my new job but that hadn't that was a bit delayed it wasn't open so there wasn't that many options and my teacher just said you know apply for an apprenticeship and if you get a good apprenticeship they'll they'll basically take you your studies further so I did and I got a really fantastic one actually it was with General Motors it was with a a sub-assembly factory in Kirby and it's what would now be called a rotational degree level apprenticeship it never had anything like that name it was just an apprenticeship in a car factory you clocked (laughs) in now in your new skill you can label it (laughs) I can label it and I I can label it and it sounds so so much more impressive but it basically it was it was up to you really it was there was five of us there were four guys and me so I was the token that to have one woman so uh, every year there was one so I was that one and I loved it I absolutely loved it it was I mean two and a half thousand people worked in the car factory you know you clocked on you know the smell of metal you walk through the car factory every day and it was you couldn't you couldn't recreate the learning experience it was so good and then I just went around the whole factory learning pretty much everything how the whole business works as well as going one day a week to study up to degree level yeah and you went on as as you mentioned to obviously study business studies at university did you get much of a university experience no I went no. one day a week and, and a Wednesday evening I didn't know anyone I have no friends from university I've got friends from wasn't when... it like a freshers week then or no. you were working full time yeah. the degree was shoved on right so I used to get Fridays off and I used to also have to go on Wednesday evenings after work and then I did my homework at, at the weekend and yeah and that was it basically you know I did my dissertation in my I did my dissertation on the replacement car market in Europe it was actually implemented and it was used because it was real because I was seeing these business problems so do you think approaching in that way meant that you perhaps were more focused on using a degree to kind of further your career than perhaps some people are who go to university because a on this podcast but more generally lots of people see it more adolescence and experience that goes I think perhaps compared to other countries like Germany where people often live at home while going to university it's almost seen here as kind of a romantic coming of age experience yeah no I didn't have the romantic coming of age experience to be honest none of my friends did nobody yeah nobody around me did nobody in my family did nobody at my school did and it was a coming of age experience that happened for other people (laughs) let's just say our coming of age experience was get a job earn some money, pay some keep. So we had to pay. I yeah. mean, I, you know, as soon as I started work, all of us, you know, we started to pay, you know, some, some money to our parents to help out. So it was a completely different rite of passage. But I wouldn't say, I mean, I enjoyed it thoroughly yeah. and we still had great fun. I mean, you're growing up in Liverpool, you can't not have fun. Is it funny hearing some of your Conservative MP colleagues talk about their university days? Just, or not, just because it does feel like chalk and cheese. It, 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 it's yeah. a different experience. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I used to read Mallory Town 
hours yeah. and I went to a comprehensive school in Knowsley, right? They were very different experiences. I could appreciate one <laughs> from the book. And, and I used to think, oh, I'd love to do, play lacrosse. I didn't really know what lacrosse was, but it sounded cool. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's a very different experience. And you, you, the thing is, you only get your own experience. You can't basically be someone else or get yeah. someone else's opportunity. Now, I want to talk about your career before politics because, again, perhaps you're confused. We have, I suppose, a stereotype sometimes of some paths to becoming an MP, which is obviously going to Oxbridge, being a special advisor for a few years, and then moving into a seat. But you're in a group which lots of people say they want to see more of, which is having actually a very long, successful career out of politics before going there. It's almost, I suppose, you could call it your second career. So in terms of your business career, Amadeus, um, other parts, some I mentioned in the introduction, I wondered if you could give us a, you know, highlight role (laughs) of, um, you know, what you were doing and what you learned along the way. So obviously the apprenticeship, you got to learn everything. And that gave them the opportunity to see what you were good at and what you liked. And they basically said to me, look, you've got a really good personality. You're a very good communicator. You should do something commercial. You've got a head for figures as well. So, you know, we see you more as an outward facing person as opposed to someone in the back room designing the car part or whatever. And that was careers advice of a kind I guess but it was actually good and they did know me quite well so I started as a buyer buying the pieces for cars which was actually a highly stressful job because they just introduced just in time so effectively everything had to arrive at once otherwise they didn't make the car that was a lot of expense with no car so it was super stressful because they couldn't arrive too early and they couldn't arrive too late so that was that was that experience and that was you know what I learned there I then went on through the procurement route to become IT procurement manager for NatWest for NatWest bank uh, one of them so that was that and then I was highly commercial I then ended up bizarrely in Tokyo which was basically trying to get digital payments sourced so you know it was at the time it was in the 90s there was lots of things happening the internet was coming mobile phones were coming and then after that I did did you learn Japanese when you were in Tokyo I tried this is so funny because I went to Harlow College to try (laughs) to learn Japanese and I spent six months trying to do this and I thought you know I could spend the rest of my life trying to do this and never sound any better than a 18 month year old but it did actually make me think I wanted to learn a second language and I loved I loved Japan I loved spending that time in Tokyo but the next job opportunity I did get was when I went to Madrid to work with Amadeus I was there for eight years and I did learn to speak Spanish so I suppose that started that journey and then I kind of moved into sales so that I ended up leading global customer sales it was a very international business it was a great company which is where I ended up getting a lot of financial security so I'd worked a lot I'd got my got you know gone up the ranks as such but the IPO gave me financial security and it was then that I thought you know what I just feel like I've missed out and I want to go back full-time and that's when I went to London Business School in 2010 and did the full-time experience but I still didn't go for the sort of you know going away Oxford Towers or whatever not that I (laughs) would have got got in it was super practical you know how do I get to learn all about data and digital and you know the whole world's changed in terms of technology so you know that's what I did And I did, after then, intend to do something different. But then I got pulled back into the corporate world because basically they throw money at you and offer you jobs and it's hard to resist that. So, yeah, I did go back in the corporate world for a couple of years. But then I thought, you know, I'd already started to think about a second career. 
I thought I definitely want to do something different. The great thing about starting at 16 is you're young enough to be able to do, you know, nearly 30 years in one career. And I don't know how long I'll do in this one, but you do actually have the time because you start young. Now talk us through the process in which you decide to try and become an MP. And Jenkin, does she play an important role in that? Yeah, she was, she was absolutely, I didn't know this woman, right? So I'd gone to the theatre, which was quite unusual in itself because my husband also had an international business career. So the chance of us both being in London in the week and a theatre, and having tickets was really super low. So we'd got organised. I think I'd bought these tickets for his birthday, and we went anyway. And during the interval, we met somebody that we both knew, who was actually worked in the Japanese business world, and he was with her. And they both knew each other because their kids went to school. And I think the reason they were together was, I think Anne had bought the tickets, and I think Bernard couldn't go, and she'd invited this family friend. And we met in the interval. And during that 15 minutes, I mean, she's a fast worker, Baroness Anne Jenkins, I must say, but during that 15 minutes, she'd said to me, have you ever thought of being an MP? And I said, no, that's completely random. Why would anybody wake up in the morning as a business person and think, you know what, I'm going to be an MP? So she said, come for a cup of tea in the House of Lords, which obviously is a very easy invitation to say yes yeah, to. I've never been to. to the House of Lords. It's like, whack. I mean, you suddenly feel like you've already arrived. I'm going, you know, I'm going to the House of Lords for tea. So I went to the House of Lords for tea. Having said that many times, it sounds so good to <laughs> So I went there and I had a long conversation and she basically said, you know, we're looking for more women. We're looking for more women who have different backgrounds and business backgrounds in particular. And, you know, your your background, you know, coming from Liverpool and obviously being a natural conservative in a way, you know, nobody had told me. Well, in fact, the opposite. Everyone had told me not to be a conservative. So I'd naturally come to the party. So I just built on it from there. But of course, you know, you know politics better than I do. Once you think about, okay, this sounds like an interesting thing to do I've always been curious so you know I'm like okay let's see see what's in you know open what's behind that door then I had to sort of start at the bottom really I had to start at the bottom and I think that's that's one of the things that might put a lot of people off you know you you, you've got these big business careers by that time you've got lots of people working for you you've got the office with the you know the swingy chair and you know the views and whatever and the cash and and you suddenly you start again And you start again not knowing if it's going to go anywhere because it's a random process getting selected in politics. So it's really a bit of a leap of faith. So I can see why a lot of people wouldn't do it. You've got to... You've got to be in that mindset, which is, you know, I've done this for a long time. I'm going to have a shot at something else. But it's not an easy path because it's much easier to stay in the corporate world and carry on doing the next job and get the next pip up. But, you know, life's too short in some ways to do the same thing for a long time. And at that point, were you a card-carrying Conservative Party member? or Yes, I had joined the party. And I joined the party in 98. And that's obviously after we after lost very heavily. And I guess what really drove me to really join the party is we were living at that point it's actually Jeremy Hunt's constituency now it was Virginia Bottomley and she'd nearly lost that seat which was a very safe conservative seat and I thought my goodness you know this has really been you know quite a a catastrophic event and you know maybe I should do a little bit more to help I didn't do very much to help because that was just before I then got a job in Madrid and whizzed off there so you know I joined the party I donated you know to the various raffles or whatever but I didn't get involved as it were because I was still you know, taking 100 flights a year in an international business career, so it wasn't really possible. But I did, you know, join 
Now, you contested St. Helens South and Worcester in 2015. What was that like, campaigning? And what's the process like getting to stand in a seat like that? Well, it was fantastic because it enabled me to go back and live with mum and dad for a bit. So I went right back to my childhood home, you know, staring at the same Artex ceiling that I'd stared at for pretty much all my life. And, you know, you always have this feeling when you're you're sort of, you know, you don't really start with very much. And you always think, you know, I'll give it a go. You know, the worst thing that can happen is I end up back in in my old bedroom, which is, of course, where I'd suddenly ended up. (laughs) There I was uh, in my 40s thinking, Jesus, a little bit too literal um put some new posters up <laughs> yeah exactly get rid of jackie <laughs> so so that was lovely now for, for my parents it was a little bit of a shock they could not believe you know they were so proud of the business career that i built and you know the spoils of, of, of that as well and they couldn't believe that you'd finally got yourself to a point where you were you no know, earning good money and you know financially secure and then you'd kind of give it up so they couldn't believe that then they were a bit fearful, you know, there are, you know, it, it, politics had changed, you know, even when I was younger, you could say you were a conservative and people would just be like, that's weird. But no one would think you were a horrible person or be nasty or there was no identity politics. Nobody sort of painted themselves as a martyr by their, you know, political or a good or a bad person by their political party or who they vote for. But that had kind of changed. And so they were a bit fearful. So I actually changed my name. I kept my maiden name up until that point all the way through my career. And I changed my name to my husband's name because my dad looked so worried. He was like, really, you know, does this job come with insurance? And so he was worried. So I had to kind of take them along the journey because they couldn't understand it. People said it was going to be really tough because, of course, they don't really normally vote conservatives in Merseyside actually people are still people and you know I was finding they were still friendly you know they'd say oh you know no we're not going to vote for you or whatever but they weren't nasty at all only the activists and some of the sort of people who are activists are kind of nasty but on the whole people are just lovely so I really enjoyed it I enjoyed being back home I knew I wasn't going to win and, you know, I got to know Connor and Mary, actually the two Labour MPs who, who won their seats on that, in that election. And it was a great experience. It's, it's, it's when you know if you want to do it. It's when you know. And there's certain moments, there's your face on a leaflet. That's kind of a big thing, giving it to people. It's like offering a part of yourself, seeing your face on posters with things drawn all over them. That's a thing. Can you, can you do that or not? Doing hustings where people might be shouting or whatever you know is that how you want to spend your time is that how you want to spend your life and they're really important you have to test yourself in politics because there's there's a lot of tests that you get and you, you know there's no point doing all of that and then giving up and you end that election as you say you don't win your seat but it wasn't as though there was a big expectation that you would and you in that process have decided you definitely want to be an mp yeah, yeah, yeah. I came, I came second for the first time. I was very, pr- I mean, a country mile behind the first place. But yeah, I decided, I decided I did. And, and more than that, I thought maybe I could because, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I'm not super confident. I'm not one of these people like, you know, the world's been waiting for me. Like, you know, here I am. I'm just, you know, I'm, let's say I, I have to build my confidence in a much slower, more normal way. So I had to just do that and see whether I thought I could do it. I'm still like that now, you know, the thing about politics is you spend too much of your time out over your skis thinking, oh my God, now I've got to go on the telly and now I've got to go and do you know, question time or now I've got to go and do this it's always something that's for me something I've never done before and something that feels like another mountain to climb every day but that really does inspire you as well it keeps you stimulated let's say now you win your seat and you enter parliament but it's not quite the huge new intake that was predicted because actually the election ends up being 
bit of a disaster for Theresa May. You know, the Tory party hold on, but they have to do a pact with the DUP. What was it like entering Parliament at that point? You know, it's a strange time to arrive, really. It was. It was bewildering, actually. I think the whole thing was bewildering. And the upside is we're, we're quite a close intake for 2017. There's not that many of us. We're quite... We're quite um, <laughs> Traumatised intake. Well, we know, we, we, you know, we, we know each other. We used, to, we, used to, we used to book a room in, in the, you know, for a meal and we'd all just about be able to squeeze around the table, you know, big table. But, um, you know, so that's good. So, so I think in terms of the friendships and, you know, we all kind of joined at the same time. So that that's positive. But actual parliament, I mean, I don't think even people who'd been there for decades could f- keep up with what was going on. It was quite an extraordinary time. Obviously, we'd had this sort of monumentous referendum with the with the results uh, to leave the European Union. And then we had to try and do it in some way, shape or form. And then we had to try and do it in a hung parliament <laughs> and all of those things together, which obviously proved to be just too much actually it's just and I suppose if you're thinking about it now I suppose it was always obvious that it was going to be too much because hung parliaments bring opportunism and you know all sorts of people's views uh, then become more apparent so yeah it was but for me it was like a crash course I felt like it was an intensive course and I learned an awful lot an awful lot I mean you know we even went through a leadership contest we went through votes of confidence and all kinds of things which are really rare events but you know (laughs) we got them all. Now I want to talk about that leadership contest but just before we do on Brexit we are now reaching a point where you know it's crunch Brexit talks again but it does feel a lot of the drama's gone out of it in in the sense of the drama during the Theresa May years because back then it wasn't just a drama between the UK and the EU it was about the parliamentary party you know the, the fact they're it didn't really work for maybe any type of Brexit. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but you, I think, were, you know, someone who supported Theresa May's Brexit deal. And I seem to remember that you did, had to, you were you, uh, one of the people brave enough to go out uh, on broadcast and, and say what you did. Did that give you a good expertise in, uh, I suppose, broadcast for a politician? Because, I mean, I, I think it was quite a difficult gig at the time. <laughs> well, you know what? It's really funny. So I get to the withdrawal agreement and I spent the whole re- weekend reading it. It was 597 pages in the first first um, version of it I then made my husband read it so that we could discuss it and you know so I'm a business was he grateful for that well he he is now because he can talk about it in great detail (laughs) but you know I so we could talk about it but we both I guess we were both talking about it from a perspective of international business so we understood how international business works we understood how it worked with the European Union how it worked in countries with other countries so from that perspective and I remember I never forget I went back in on the you know into Parliament on the Monday and I was chatting to a few people and I and I said I was actually quite relieved when I read this agreement I thought it's a sensible you know if you give somebody the task which is you know exiting the European Union after 45 years without breaking up you know creating too much risk for jobs or whatever if that is if if that's what you want to achieve then this is this is kind of the way to do it but of course that's not how it worked out and I realized their reaction when you said that to people well they were saying no no no, we don't like this and when I was trying to probe it because I had actually read it I realized that perhaps maybe they just already decided they didn't like it or something like this so I really 
realised there was a completely different sort of parallel universe where all this was going on. Again, a learning experience. I'm quite literal and quite pragmatic, but I then realised that I was doing something that other people were not, uh, which not was actually trying sessions. to figure out how it was going to work and, you know, really looking into the customs arrangements and stuff like that. So, But that was, I guess, probably my experience of sort of, by that point, nearly 30 years in business and about two years in politics. Now, I want to talk about Rory Stewart because in that leadership contest that followed, I mean, you're talking about being a pragmatist and I think what was quite refreshing was in that Tory leadership contest, you clearly had Boris Johnson, who I don't think was always seen as a favourite, to be fair, given the fact that he weren't sure we'd have parliamentary support. But I think it's fair to say that if Boris Johnson wasn't always the favourite... Rory Stewart was never the favourite. <laughs> he was outside bet. He had a campaign that was very pro the deal. And he, I want to say grassroots campaign, but I, I don't know how, what would describe it as, but it just quickly sprung up. It gathered momentum. And before you knew it, he was going much further than lots of people who I think people thought would, would be doing better. So, and you were one of his first backers, I, I believe. Why did you back Rory Stewart? And did uh, your colleagues laugh at you in the beginning? The, uh, yes, in, in answer to the second question. So firstly, I went and sat down with every single leadership contester and asked them lots of questions and genuinely was open-minded. I didn't know any of them, to be honest. I knew Boris was going to win. It was obvious Boris was going to win. I think by the time I sat down and had my conversation with Boris, I think there was 160 Conservative MPs who had backed him. And so I said <laughs> yeah. to him, well, you know, what's the point of me you being 161 at first? And it was, you know, the dying in the ditch thing. And, I, you know, I was very honest with him. I said, look, you know, I understand why you have to do this and I understand why it fits for you, but I've got a reputation as someone who actually understands business. So dying in a ditch isn't that sort of attractive for me. So it's going to make me look like I don't know what I'm doing or don't know what I'm talking about. And, and actually my business reputation is important to me because it's real and it is a differentiator in politics. So I wasn't willing to do the no deal dying in a ditch, which is where that, that made that back in that difficult. And then I just looked at all the others and it was when we came to some of the hustings and I'm, I'm pretty clear that to actually be prime minister of this country you've got to be a really good communicator we've had poor communicators and it doesn't work that well I just think you need to be able to communicate and just get you know get to the British people and when I looked at them all I just thought the that actually Boris and Rory were the standout communicators. Both of them were excellent communicators. I mean, I knew Rory wasn't going to win, but I thought he'll show a side to our party and he'll be able to communicate well and he'll be able to show balance to our party as well. So, you know, he's worth being in the contest. So, But I knew he wasn't going to win. And of course, everyone says to you, oh, you know, this is a big mistake. You know, you have to back Boris, otherwise you'll never get a job. And I thought, well, I've had loads of jobs, you know, if I don't get this next one, then I'll get, you know, I'll get somewhere in life. So, so it's not. It's I'll be not, all right. I'll be all right. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm 52. It's not. It's I don't have the same desire, you know, that maybe I would if I was 32. Yeah. Have you got any particular highlights from that Rory Stewart campaign? I flashbacks to like standing in various outdoor venues in London. Yeah, as there was a there was the circus tent where he did the launch, and <laughs> there was all these kind of trapeze and everything around. What was astonishing is. There was hundreds and hundreds of people in the venue. There was hundreds of people outside of the venue. And then there was 6,000 people live streaming it. I'm thinking 6,000 people are live streaming a conservative launch event for a leadership. That, of course, is, you know, incredibly difficult to see how he could win, particularly if he if he got to, even to the members because that was uh, <laughs> going to be his, his biggest <laughs> challenge. So, so... Um, it was fun, though. I, what I yes, it, it was, was different. Those Everyone seemed to be doing because they generally wanted to do it. And there was a lot of people who just were like, you know, fuck it. 
ultimately we'll just do something we, we'll do something we actually want to do and see what happens and and there was something you know I didn't believe that he was going to be leader I didn't think that was possible but I did believe that he had something to say and I, I liked his communication style I liked his style of, of communicating as well and I just thought he he broadened the appeal of the Conservative Party particularly amongst young people young people loved him and actually I still go around Chichester now and people say to me oh you know oh well you you're all right you backed Rory Stewart you know so <laughs> so, so for some people it worked and particularly for younger people it worked now I want to move obviously to, to the present day now you had various PPS roles but your current role is as we say in the Department of Education on apprenticeships now when you were offered it what was the conversation that happened do you think the fact that you're probably in the minority in the Tory parliamentary party has actually done an apprenticeship yeah I mean I I I kind of semi-pitched for the role I think you know that you have these sort of open sort of discussions about you know what, what where you see yourself what kind of things are, and and of course you know there's a lot of things that I could contribute to obviously business international trade digital I've worked in technology for a long time I probably understand tech more than most but I said, you know, if, if if it was me making the decision, then I would I would put me in the apprenticeships and skills minister job because I'm the living, walking, talking, breathing. I'm I'm it. I'm exactly what you know an apprenticeship offers in terms of life chances, social mobility, careers. It worked for me. I can be a great advert for it. I really passionately believe in them because obviously I did one. I think they're the best kept secret in this country. I mean, we were talking earlier about why do people still go and get all this debt for degrees when actually you can do a degree apprenticeship or you can do a higher level apprenticeship for free and get paid. So I really believe in them. But I also think, and this is this is something in my DNA, having gone to a nosely comprehensive school for, for all, all of the five years that I was at school, senior school, I know in my DNA that the people I was there with are as bright as anyone I've met ever since. Even if the people I've met ever since have got much better qualifications. And there's a conversation in the DfE, you know, people are level zeros, ones, twos or whatever. And it's basically your qualification level. And then they have different policies for different levels. And But they're quite patronising some of the policies at the bottom level because it's as though really you just can't do it. And I think, well, actually most people can do it. They just didn't have a good experience at school. Or they, you know, they went to school years ago and, you know, they, they, they lost, you know, those, those opportunities. Or, you know, lots of people have very complex lives and difficult things are going on. So, but I know in my DNA that they are as bright and therefore they can do whatever they want and and you know in, in future years they'll have opportunities if you can give them the opportunity they will go somewhere you know my best friend she left school with one GCSE well CSE the CSE bit she didn't do the GCE bit so CSE one and the other one left with zero and and I got 10 right so so that was that was us and you know she's she's now got a degree and and two masters you know and she she came you know the local council estate her mum worked in the same factory my nan did Huntley and Palmer's a uh, 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 dad was a uh, tradesman electrician I think and you know that was it but now she you know she runs a cancer hospital uh, from the, she sat next you know well she didn't actually sit next to me she was in you know the lower classes even so you know I know that I know that I see, I go back to school reunions I see some terrible stories of people whose lives haven't worked out but just also people who've basically found their way on in life so I I in my DNA I believe that 
Yeah. And I, I, is it your boss? I don't know. The education secretary, Gavin Williamson, also went to a state school. He did. And we were speaking after quite a tumultuous few days for the Conservative Party for the departure of Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson's director of comms, Lee Kane. And there's much to discuss there, but I just wondered, one of the things we were talking about just before we started recording was with Lee Kane going, also a state school, but he once dressed as a chicken back when he worked did shifts the mirror he was the mirror chicken that went and sca- tried to scare politicians when they didn't do debates and it's been quite interesting I think in the past week or so because some of the anonymous quotes were, you know saying oh well this person was never cut out to be a director of comms because you know they were a former chicken or it, there's a there's almost a little bit of snobbery in it what do you think about all that? I mean, you know what? You do what you have to do, right? I, I can imagine. I, I don't know what would happen if someone said to me, right, you know, today you've got to dress as a chicken and, and follow this guy around. In a way, I, sp- I suppose, I don't know Lee Kane. I would imagine he probably found it funny. I'd find it quite funny. I'd think, you know what? This is actually quite funny. It's quite clever. It's very easy for other people to, you know, to have views. But, you know, I, I think it's the rise of the working class comprehensive school kids in conservatism. You know, I'm, I'm very happy with that position. I'm very happy being one of those groups and I do think there's many of us that's actually a big change in the 2019 general election there's a lot of working class conservatives who went to comprehensive schools which by the way is what 93 percent of the population does it is normal it is so normal Uh, it's more normal than anything else you know so I think I think that we just need to remember that and now just a few very quick final things before we end the podcast one is I mentioned obviously change in the party there's lots of speculation at the moment about what direction the Tory party will go in you know with some change at the top a Boris Johnson reset I think it's also Downing Street saying nothing will change but some people think something will change <laughs> so it's great to report on but I wondered um, what's in your view you know how much of a broad church should the Tory party be do you think it should be very focused on the red wall or do you think there's scope because there's a debate at the moment about how much environment you can do is there scope to actually kind of reach out to I suppose Lib Dem type Tory voters at the same time as Red Bull voters do we need to confine ourselves so I keep reading um, articles on this which I you know I never studied political philosophy so I'm kind of in awe of it in a way that I kind of sort of glad I'm not one so I I kind of look at it and think so so for me I've always been quite even when I grew up in Knowsley, the the values of the people that I, I grew up with and my family are the conservative values. I always used to say if there was a blind test and you just looked at policies and, and, and things, you would probably get more of them choosing conservative. But the conservative party brand was has obviously been sort of hijacked by the left. And certainly that's still the case in Liverpool. What happened at the last election is something I've always thought, which is if, you know, the sort of pragmatic sort of northerners who look at it and think, actually, this, 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 this sort of chimes with my views. Now, of course, a lot of that was the catalyst for that was Brexit. But there are other things as well. Skills and apprenticeships are something that, you know, absolutely transcends every single one of those groups that you said. Skills are the answer to all of it. And, you know, everybody thinks that skills and apprenticeships are important, even if they don't think their own kids should do one. They, when they look <laughs> themselves in the bathroom mirror, they have to admit that to, the, to themselves. They do. That's just because of their own sort of, you know, life journeys. 
Now, obviously, tone, language and those kind of things and how the party presents itself, well, that, that can differ at times. And that was quite stark in the last election with Brexit and get Brexit done, which was a divisive election. But that now is gone. And I, I, I know that most people, even if they voted Remain, I voted Remain, you know, accepted, accepted from, from the get-go, actually, that, that, that we should leave, that, you know, we have had a vote and we're Democrats and we ought to do it. So I think most people were in that frame of mind. Coronavirus has clearly got the agenda. You know, anyone who thinks, we'll, you know, we'll do this, we'll do that, etc. We are actually really, you know, trying to manage the unmanageable with a, a sort of high, highly infectious virus that can kill certain parts of the population, that a huge amount of the population seem to be asymptomatic. And, you know, we're trying to manage the unmanageable in a way. Now, obviously, you know, there's been a lot of things that have had to happen there. But I, I feel like we're if we can get, you know, we're sat here today, we've got the second vaccine, it uh, looks like it's 95% viable in terms of accuracy. It looks like we're going to have vaccines. It looks like mass testing is going to become more of a tool that we can use to allow people to see their loved ones in care homes or to allow people to go into venues and to try and get some normality. It won't be completely normal for a while, but to get some normality back as we go into the next year. If that is the case, then really the agenda becomes much more about the levelling up. And levelling up, to me, is you know is, is the number one thing. And it is levelling up that opportunity. It is the kid, the one that sat there, like I was in a nosy comprehensive school today, you know, making sure that she has the opportunities that I had, making sure that most of them have the opportunities, not just one, you know, the one in ten, you know, that more people have those opportunities. And I believe that that's something you know, that everybody could get behind. Everybody in our party would get behind that. I'm a big, you know, I absolutely support that we need to focus on the green agenda. There's no doubt with COP26 next year that that will happen. So, you know, there's a lot of initiatives in that area and I think everyone can get behind that. So I believe those two things will be able to drive a lot of unity within the party. I hope so anyway. <laughs> Fingers crossed. And then final question is when we ask everyone on this podcast, which is just, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Well, it was my best mate from school, Jackie, who basically I had long hair and I hadn't done much with it. And she basically told me I was boring and, you know, I was never going to get a boyfriend. And, you know, what I needed to do was... And the place she advised me to go was my nan's hairdresser. And actually they used, for the perm I had, they used the same rollers with the diameter of a pencil. And I tell you that it took three years of my social life was gone. Just there. Just there. I mean, it was the most unbelievably bad perm three and a half years later people were congratulating me and saying how lovely it was and I'd had it three and a half years before so it was just it took out a whole portion of my life um she was supposed to come with me to give me advice and guidance but let's just say didn't wake up in time so uh, that's probably the worst advice that I've ever been given and she knows it and she, she always argues that I got the time wrong and she would have gone, been there to save me from this disastrous uh, I mean it to completely change my my life I looked I think I put on about 40 years in, in one day. <laughs> so uh, that was the worst advice. Um, and probably the one that I ignored was the one where they said to me, you know, not to go to London Business School. Don't take a year off. You're right on the, you know, you're going to get to the top. Don't do it. And of course, my life's changed massively from that because I now find myself in a completely different career. So uh, that's probably the best of the, the advice that I best ignored because I, I love what I'm doing now and I love where I am in life. Thank you, Gillian. And thank you for listening. Spectator is having a flash sale. Get 12 issues of the magazine for just £12. 
in print and online. Plus, we'll give you a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey completely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash sale. Be quick, the offer ends on Monday.